Aren't you thankful for the work of the blood in your own life? Let's stand all across this building if we can. Our evening speaker has proven whether it is a youth event, preaching to our men, or here at our camp meeting. He has the ineptability to hear from God and then impart that word to us. Would you welcome Brother Scott Graham to this pulpit tonight in Jesus' name. Well, I hope we haven't got over what the blood has done in our lives. Because I promise you, there's not one of us that'd be here tonight if it wasn't for that blood of Jesus Christ. I read it very clearly. We're not here by silver and gold. We're not redeemed by any of that stuff from that old lifestyle that we received by tradition from our fathers, but by the precious blood of Jesus. As of a lamb slain without spot or without blemish, I want to tell you I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. I hope we don't ever get over it. We never get over that. My good brother back here in the aisle, kind of wave your hand at me there, sir, that's been up here dancing around acting like you're Pentecostal or something. Now, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from or any of that, but I know our good superintendent leaned over to me and said he spoke to Brother Williams last night and said that he was in a wheelchair. Now, I don't know how long ago that's been, but he said as long as... You know, it'd kind of be a shame to have to go into a wheelchair to be glad to do that, wouldn't it? Now, I asked Brother Williams, I said, how long ago has that been? He said, I really don't know, and I got to thinking later, however long ago it's been, he ain't got over it yet. I don't care if it's last week or 27 years ago, he's still glad he's not like he used to. I don't know how long ago you were baptized in Jesus' name, but I hope you're still glad you're not like you used to be. Hallelujah. That's why you better be careful anytime you ever kind of look at somebody and say, I'm not sure that's necessary. You ain't come from where they've come from. You just you ain't lived where they've lived. You don't have their testimony. <laughs> Praise God. What a joy to be here, man. If you missed today, you missed some good stuff coming over this pulpit. I'm sorry this is all you got for here tonight. Cause, uh, but, man, what great word today. I, I, Brother Myers, I just sitting here and say, I want to go home and be a better pastor. I, I want to be a better leader. I want to be a better a better watchman on the wall. I want to be a better husbandman. I want to be. I want to avoid that town in Iowa. And if you weren't here today, you don't know what we're talking about, and I'm not going to tell you. So just. Make you buy the tape. Or, well, they don't have tapes anymore. And Brother Kenzie, my Lord, one of the great faith preachers of our, of our generation, I thank God for the great word we heard today. We're a part of something ancient. Thank God. These are ancient things. It's nothing new we came up with. These are ancient things we're a part of. Praise God. It's just a delight to be here with you. Thank you for all your kindness. So many dear friends here. I want to preach tonight from Joshua chapter 2, the second chapter of Joshua I will read beginning in verse number 15. And I am going to be very passionate about what I preach tonight. I'll just give you that fair warning. Joshua chapter 2 and verse number 15. And you can either look at your Bibles or look at the screens. I told our folks, we do this. We have this on our screens at home. I told our congregation a while back, this is for sinners that don't have Bibles. 
not, not for saints that can't find theirs. At any rate, I know it's a convenience. I know it's a convenience. I got so convicted a while back, somebody pointed out, you don't ever bring your Bible. I had my Bible on my phone, and all my young people thought I was texting. Every time I'd look up some guy to be preaching, I'd look up Scripture. Who are you texting now? I'm not texting anybody. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I was Joshua chapter 2 and verse number 15. The word of the Lord says, Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourself there three days, until the pursuers be returned, and afterward may you go your way. And the men said unto her, We will be blameless of this thine oath, which thou hast made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. I'm going to preach tonight by the help of the Lord on the value of a scarlet thread. I wonder how much that thing was worth to her after that day. In the intervening time between that moment and when the Israel came and the walls of Jericho fell, how much do you suppose she esteemed and valued the only thing that was standing between her family and destruction? How much regard should we have for the only thing that's standing between our families and destruction? I want to try to elevate our estimation tonight about the value of a scarlet thread. Would you lift your voice to heaven and let's ask God to talk to us tonight. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. Hallelujah. I feel a sanctioning of your spirit here tonight. I need your help, Lord, to preach your word. And I pray you touch every one of our hearts, our minds, and our spirits that we could receive what you want to say to us tonight trusting this time into your care and believe that you're going to receive all glory for it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 God bless you. Please be seated for as long as you want to. I don't suppose there has ever been a time. I would say I'm very safe in saying that indeed there has never been a time when hell was not actively involved in warring against the church. We understand that, that there's never been a season when hell's designs were not bent on the destruction of God's church. And yet I understand from Scripture that he understands a little bit about the timing of God and the Scripture talks about the fact that he comes down with great wrath because he knows he has but a short time. So if we really believe the coming of the Lord is very soon and that it is not long before the trumpet will sound and we'll be caught away like we sang about tonight, it is then not unreasonable to believe that the enemy is elevating his game in trying to attack the church. I have seemed to observe of late and seemed to sense an elevated level of demonic activity targeted specifically at the building blocks of the church, and that is our family structures. Over just the last week, my wife and I have gotten word of a couple of very dear friends whose 
marriage and family structure seems to be unraveling. One indeed has, has come completely apart and another one that seems to be under assault. Am I the only pastor here that knows that the families in your church just seem to be battered and beaten and marriages are unraveling and children are going haywire? It is no secret that within our culture the basic and foundational unit of one man and one woman for life is suddenly no longer basic or foundational. Our courts and our legislatures have bowed at the altars of political correctness until even the institution of marriage is being systematically redefined. You, you talked about it this morning, Elder. Let me just say, allow me to say, I will go on record tonight that no matter what the courts may say and no matter what judicial activists may try to accomplish and no matter what perverted protesters may claim and no matter what manner of ungodly laws the politicians may write, the Word of God will never change and this Word still declares that God's plan is one man to one woman for life. But when I refer tonight to an assault on our homes, I mean something broader than just the enemy attempting to societally redefine marriage. Now certainly since God's word says that he hates divorce, it stands to reason that the enemy would delight in tearing apart this depiction of Christ and the church. But I would go beyond just that tonight to tell you that there is an assault against the bedrock principles that support our home and family structures. There is an assault against the active living of godly priorities in our home life. There is an assault against the relationship between parents and children. There is an assault against the very hallmarks of our apostolic identity. There is an assault against the doctrinal underpinnings that secure the salvation of our souls and of our children. There is an assault against the practical application of a call to separation in our lifestyle. And while we may be shocked by societal shifts and while we may be troubled by headlines of ungodly trends in Washington, D.C. or in Tallahassee, I want to sound the trumpet tonight of a conflict that is much closer to us than anything in a seat of governmental power. Because the greatest threat to my home is not what happens in D.C. The greatest threat to my home is not what happens for me in Jeff City, Missouri. The greatest threat to my home is what happens at 40 Beaujolais Drive, Florissant, Missouri, 63031. The greatest danger in my home is what goes on in my home. Because I say to you that every one of us here, blow by blow and battle by battle, the enemy of our souls is doing more damage than any legislator or any judge could ever do. I hope you can hear me right now. We are in a conflict for the souls of our kids. We are in a war for the long-term stability of our marriages. We are in a war for the spiritual legacy handed to our grandkids. 
Man, I'm going to preach this with or without some of you. But the church has got to arise. Put on the armor of God. Take up the weapons of our warfare. Pick up the shield of... It's time for somebody to say enough is enough. Not one more child. Not one more teenager. Not one more marriage. Not one more spouse. Not one more home. Not one more soul. I wish we'd get our back up a little bit and say the children are his. The youth are his. The backsliders are his. Children that grew up in our Sunday schools don't belong to hell when they go to college. I've had my fill of working with kids all through their childhood and through their teen years and then watch them when they get in that in-between thing out of high school, throw away what they believed, walk away from the faith. Is anybody mad besides me? So you act like you're mad. I am mad. I'm not mad at those kids, but I'm mad at the devil that thinks he's got a claim to our kids. I'm mad at an enemy that thinks that Holy Ghost-filled couples can't celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the world trying to press us into that mold. remember where we were just a few days ago. I mentioned that side. Our 25th anniversary is coming up in two weeks. We were someplace just out in a business. Well, I, don't, I can't even remember. It's been recently. Just last, maybe the airport the other day. Said something about it. Somebody said something about my wife. And I said, yeah, we'll be married 25 years or two weeks. She went, oh, my goodness. Like that was just unheard of. 25 years. I realize your perspective changes as time goes on. When I first got, when we first got married, we'd been married just, I don't know, four or five years, three or four years, three or four years, I guess. And my wife's parents celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary. And we drove from St. Louis down to go see them. I remember clearly driving on that drive, thinking to myself, do you know how old you have to be to be married 25 years? I can now answer that question. You don't have to be old at all. But all I know is in this culture, that lady looked at me like I had three ears. What's wrong with you? You mean you married her and stayed with her? What is something's wrong with you? I don't know how this world looks at it, but it ought never be that the systems of this world begin to affect our thinking in the church. There needs to be a culture within the church that says we are not in, we're in this world, but we're not of this world, baby. We live by some different standards. We live by some different yardsticks. There have to be some people that rise up and fight against this thing and say it will not go unchallenged. If it's a war, then it's a war. And if it's a fight, then it's a fight. I'm afraid we've become too lax about this thing. Kind of like some of those voices that don't want to call it a war on terror. Well, honey, it ain't a negotiation with troublemakers. Few things are more dangerous 
than a war in which one side won't fight. But when the sounds of battle are echoing, and when the landscape is littered with the tragedies, and when the enemy laughs at the fallen, it is the wrong time for the army of the living God to just hope the enemy gets tired and quits. And so I am calling on this people tonight to rise up with a righteous indignation over an enemy that would dare to assume that he can do what he wants in our family. That dares to assume he can do what he wants with our kids. That dares to assume he can do what he wants with our grandkids. Somebody's got a purpose. Our families are worth the fight. Our marriages are worth the fight. Our children are worth the fight. Our grandchildren are worth the fight. His church is worth the fight. As a setting for this message tonight, I take you back to the city of Jericho. This massive city rested just across the Jordan River in the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. And as the Israelites under Joshua's leadership prepare to enter that land, it stands as their first obstacle. Before they even crossed over Canaan, Joshua sent two spies over to see just what they were up against. It had to be quite a story. And the intrigue and adventure are worthy of a John Le Carre spy novel. Two men, distinctly Jewish probably unable to speak fluently the native language, have to blend in with the crowd and pass through guarded gates. For they learned that the inhabitants of the city were well aware of the approaching Hebrew people and were very agitated about it. Everyone was on guard. Everyone was suspicious of strangers. And yet somehow they slipped into the city and made their way to the house of a lady named Rahab. Lady being a rather generous term. When the word got around that two strangers were there, the authorities came looking for them. Rahab hid them on, or perhaps more accurately, in her roof, which was covered over with stalks of flax. She buried them up there in that roof. She told the authorities that indeed two men had come, but she didn't know who they were, and that they waited until just as the gates were about to close for the evening, and they slipped out unnoticed. She said, if you hurry, you could probably catch up with them. And then after the authorities were gone, she bargained with those two men. She said, in exchange for the kindness I've shown you, I want something back. And man, i got to love this gal. Because she didn't say, I want money. You took all them treasures out of Egypt. You got gold stockpiled. I want money in my coffers tonight. She didn't say, I want position or I want notoriety. She didn't say, I want to be elected to some high office. She didn't say, I want, to, I want the prime choice of the land when you conquer it. She said, if I only get one thing, this is all I want. I want my family to be saved. I would to God some apostolics would get it in their heart if I never have a million dollars, if I never own a big home, if I never get a position, if I'm never noted or known. Just give me one thing, God. I want my family saved. 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 Everything else may crumble around me, but I want my family saved. I may lose my wealth and my business, but I want my family saved. I'm sure some people won't understand my motives, but I want my family saved. I don't even know what you'll ask in return, but I want my family saved. 
is too high. I want my family saved. Oh, God, baptize us with this kind of passion, this kind of reckless abandon, this kind of I'll do anything commitment. In response to her heartfelt desire for her family, God's men give her a mark or a token of her safety. The Bible says she lowered the men to the ground with what the Bible calls a scarlet thread. It's probably a little longer than that or else the walls weren't very tall. She lets them down to the ground with that thing. And when it's done, they said, after we get off, they said, you take that thing and bind it in the window of your house. And then you get your family inside that place. And everybody that's in that house. Everybody. You don't have to lose one. You hear me. I fully understand. Our kids are going to make their own choices. And you, you can do everything right, and a, and a child could choose to be lost. So this is not meant to heap condemnation or guilt on anybody whose kids have made haywire choices. But neither will I back up from the fact that he said, all of them. Every one of them. So I'm at least going to claim that promise that says all mine are going to... I'm not going to lose one of them. My kids are going to be apostolic. My grandkids are going to be apostolic. My great-grandkids are going to be apostolic. If he tarries for a hundred generations, there's going to be about a million and a half Grahams out there that still believe here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. I'm not going to... I'm just telling you, I got something down inside of me that says if I don't get anything else, I want my family to be saved. There are, there are a few lessons I learned from this story. You say, how many? I ain't telling. The first lesson I learned is this. Please say amen to this when I get done. Your family can be saved no matter your background. Rahab was hardly a model citizen. A harlot. Oh, I've heard the arguments regarding that fact that that just meant she operated an inn or a motel. Well, being that that same Hebrew word is translated fornication, whore, and whoredom, I don't think she's the great-grandfather of Tom Bodet. I, 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 I don't think she's running Motel 6 up there, all right? I think it's safe to say this woman ran a brothel. And it was not uncommon for men to be seen coming and going from her house at all hours. Thus they blended in pretty easy when they drifted in. If you'd have scoured that city and tried to pick out the one house that was going to live when a righteous people came in, it was probably the last one you'd have picked. Surely there's somebody in that town that's got more claim to having their family saved than her. She's trashy. She's got the morals of a roach. 
you got to be kidding me. She's morally unfit. She's ethically compromised. She's, she's socially bankrupt. You can't possibly tell me that a woman that comes from that, even though she had her moment with God's people, you can't begin to tell me that her family can be saved. Yet God even honored the cry of this woman to save her family. Clear back in the Old Testament, it seems like God was saying, old things are passed away and all things have become new. And how dare the devil try to reach back to what we used to be to tell us our kids can't live for God. How dare he reach under the blood and try to bring up guilt and condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't care what road you took to get to Calvary. Your kids can be saved. I don't care how messed up you were before Jesus. Your family can be saved. I am preaching tonight that no matter what your background, even if your parents were not righteous examples, your family can be saved. Even if you're the poster child for a dysfunctional upbringing. Your family can be saved. Even if the devil continually whispers to you that you have too much baggage and you've made too many mistakes and your hurt goes too deep and your situation is too hopeless, you hear the voice of this preacher tonight. Your family can be saved. Your children can live for God. You can break the pattern of your parents. You can be free from generational curses. You are more than just the sum of the previous influences in your life. He that the Son has set free is free indeed. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. You're not what you were. You're not what the enemy reminds you of. You're not bound to a destiny that's shaped by your past. Your family can be saved. I got, I got anybody over here that's recently redeemed? Anybody just came to church here in the last little bit? A couple years? Five years? Something? Come here, bud. You, you, come here. Come here. Come right up here. We won't get in too much trouble. Jump up here. That's, that's good. What's your name? Michael, you know her? Okay. Michael, uh, where are you from, sir? Well, that's good. God love you. It's kind of you to come back. Richard, if, if we were going to play on that screen, or we're not, but if we were going to play on that screen in just about two seconds, everything you ever did, every place you ever went, every word you ever spoke, Every action on the other side of Calvary that you ever committed. How many of you think Richard would not be quite as excited about being here tonight as he was just a minute? My, what? Michael. Michael I, well, Fred. <laughs> How many of you think maybe Michael wouldn't be quite as excited about being here in the next five minutes as he was for the last 30 or so? You reckon maybe Fred would be heading for the door? You, you suppose maybe, just maybe, there'd be things on that screen he'd rather... None of us know about? Right. 
Is this this group you go to church with right down here? Is that your outfit? Yeah, uh, that's whole whole bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you know you know what would be going on out there all the time that thing is playing. They'd be sitting there going, "Oh man, I didn't know Fred did that. I didn't know Fred did. Did, did you know Fred? I didn't get, keep the kids away from Fred." Now, if this doesn't bless you, it'll bless my my brother back there. But I hope you get excited about this. But just just because I want to tell you all the while this outfit and everybody out here is going. I didn't know Fred did that. I didn't know Fred did that. See, all that time, okay, all that time Jesus would be standing over here going. I didn't know Fred did that. I didn't know Fred did that. Last thing I remember, Fred was coming up out of the water, covered in my. He said, last thing I you can go down. He said, the last thing I remember, Fred was coming up out of the water, washed in my blood, free of his past, speaking in other tongues. I want to tell you, we got to get over our past. Go on, bud, go on, go on. We got to get over that thing of the enemy trying to bring that up and beat us up with it. We're new creatures in Christ. You've got a brand new spiritual legacy. There is nothing the enemy can bring up against you that the blood of Jesus Christ can't conquer. You are the purchased possession of Jesus Christ. You are an ambassador for him. You are the apple of his eye. Our families can be saved. How dare our enemies suggest that there's anything in our yesterday stronger than the blood of Christ? How dare he suggest there are others in the city more deserving of salvation than we? How dare he try to tell us and celebrate over our failures? No, no. I'm going to start professing some promises. I'm going to start walking into my kid's room in the middle of the night when they're sound asleep and start praying over them in the nighttime and, and claim it. She will live for God. He is going to be a servant of God. We will be a righteous family. No matter what we've been, today is my opportunity. And today I commit myself to something more important than my pleasure, more important than my feelings, more important than my opinions. I want my family to be saved. Point number two. See how many are there? I'm not telling. The second thing I'll tell you that I learned from this is that if you want your family saved, there's some work involved. As heartfelt as her request may have been, and as sincere as it was, God didn't just look at her and say, oh, well, okay, since that's the way you want it, it's done. He did not say, regardless of whether you do anything about this or not, I'll take care of it. There was no, hear this right here, there was no sufficiency in her desire. There was sufficiency in her actions. Rahab, if you want this, do something about it. You're not going to like this near as much as that part about him not knowing what we were before. Want your family saved? Only six people can lift their hand. Want your family saved? Do something about it.
Well, I do. I take them to church three times a week and hope the youth pastor can do something for them. Do something about it. I drop them off at Sunday school even on Sundays when I have to work so pastor can preach to them. Do something about it. See, it's going to get ugly right now. You got to take this scarlet thread. He said, Rahab, take this thing and bind it in the window. You put it there. <laughs> Good Lord, help me. Be lucky if I don't put an eye out with this thing before the night's done. He didn't say, give it to the preacher. And ask him to put it in the window. He went to Bible school and took a whole class on window binders. He knows just how to do it. He's more gifted than you are. Give it to him and let him save your family. He said when the preacher has gone home, you've still got work to do. he lets go and goes walking out the city gates on Sunday night when he shakes your hand and says praise the Lord you've still got work to do it ain't over and you can't wait for him to come and tie this into your family he said if you Jesus help us if you want your family saved tie this thing into your house You fix it there. You make it stick. I don't know how hard this was, but it still required something of her. She was proactive. She took the steps. She prioritized the time. I bet you doorknobs to doornails, she didn't take that thing and throw it over in a bucket beside her easy chair. So I'm going to have to get around to that one day. I guarantee you she didn't put that thing aside and say, you know, sometime before them kids graduate and move off to college, I better get that thing in their hearts. She said, I'm starting today. Ain't no time to wait. And she bound that thing into the window. In like fashion tonight, I am preaching that if our families are going to be saved, it will not be the haphazard consequence of passive hope. It will be the active product of militant conflict. It's going to be the outcome of moms and dads calling their children's names out in prayer. It's going to be the direct result of couples that know by frequent repetition their way to the altar for times of consecration. It's going to be the conclusion of grandparents fasting for their children's children. It will be the results of tears shed and intercession offered and battles waged and devils fought. And if I didn't say it plain enough while ago, it's not the church's job to save your family. And it's not your youth pastor's job to save your kids. And it's not your pastor's job to guarantee the security of your marriage. And it's not his job to secure the righteous condition of your home. Rahab, if you want your family to be saved, you do it. And then you get up every morning and be sure it's still there. And when you go to bed every night, be sure it's still there. Don't let one day go by that you don't check to make sure your family is still safe. Now you can think what you want to think. 
But I am convinced that she did not merely take a piece of scotch tape and lightly tack that thing up on either corner. Sure hope that stands. You see, when the salvation of my family hangs in the balance, it's no time to play around with some things. He didn't say, place it in the window. Or lay it in the window. He said, bind it in the window. You make sure, here we go, that there are some unshakable things that no wind of doctrine can blow loose. You make sure that some things are tied so tightly into your home that no difficult season of life can jar them loose. You make sure that the tenets of the apostolic faith are so woven into the framework of your family that no devil, no friend, no girl, no boy, no trial, no high school, no college professor can ever shake them out of your family. You know what that kind of sounds like? Teach them diligently to your children. Talk about them in your house. Talk about them when you walk by the way. Talk about them when you get up. Talk about them when you lay down. Make them as a sign upon your hand. Strap them as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the post of your house. Write them on your gates. Do something. Now, I don't know how to make this any plainer, but some things have to be nailed down. Some things have to be nailed down. Except a man be born of the water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If you want to save your family, bind that in the window. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you want your family to be saved, bind that in the window. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If you want your family saved, bind that. We're living in a generation when we apparently got some guys that have just draped this thing in their house. All it takes is a little financial pressure, a little peer pressure. We thought that ended with teenagers. Found out it exists in young ministry. The guys just kind of have this draped in their window. They find a season when it becomes more convenient. So I'd rather not be so dogmatic about that. (laughs) We want a king. You don't want a king. Israel, you don't want a king. I'm your king. Oh, we want a king. No, you don't. Yeah, we do. We want to be like all these nations out here. But don't you understand? I designed you to be something different than all those nations out there. Yeah, but, but we want to be like them. We want a king. You don't want a king. We want a king. Okay. 
me tell you the kind of king you're going to get. Let me tell you what he's going to do for you. He's going to take your sons and make them run in front of your chariots. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to make them confectionaries. In other words, you'll get what you want, but the price will be extracted from your kids. pretty good preaching even if I said it because there's some yahoos that have been jerking this out of the window saying I refuse to believe that matters anymore and you're just saved at repentance and we don't have to live separate and you better hear me right now young preacher if you're being tempted that way you better hear me right now you can have what you want but it's going to cost you it's your kids who are going to pay for it they're going to go a million miles farther than you ever thought they'd go I'm here to tell somebody if you want your family safe buy that thing in the window we're going to be Jesus name apostolics till the day we die we're going to be holy living we're going to be the people of God and we're never going to back up from this bind it in the window got to be nailed down till it's unshakable it's not negotiable it's truth that's been bought it's not for sale no matter what storms blow it can't shake our commitment to the apostolic message no matter what societal tends arrive it can't shake our commitment to an apostolic message in a pluralistic culture which screams that every opinion is as valid as another and in a postmodern world that decries any effort to state absolutes of any kind let us be very clear the apostolic church is and will forever be committed to a scarlet cord of doctrine which is the key to saving our families dads nail it down moms nail it down young people nail it down grandparents nail it down Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. My kids know what I believe. How? Well, I take them to church. Oh, you're expecting the preacher to nail it in the window. When's the last time you sat down with your kids and said, Kids, I just want to be very clear about something. I don't just go to United Pentecostal Church because that's what we happen to do. I am there because I believe with every fiber of my being that except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. When's... When's the last time you looked at your kids and said, Son, I just want you to understand. Your mother and I are not apostolic by chance. We are apostolic by choice. Because we absolutely believe with every fabric of our being that you must be baptized in Jesus' name. Say, Oh, they know what I believe. Good. Tell them again. Tell them again. Tell them again. Tell them again. Nail it down. Get up every morning and be sure that thing's still there. Go to bed every night and be sure that thing's still there. Because the consequences are too severe. The stakes are too high to take any chances. The third thing I learned, I won't even say it. The third thing I learned is that that scarlet thread, I can do this without hurting myself, that scarlet thread dictated access to the home. I don't know if Rahab had children or not. The Bible doesn't say. Maybe there were at least some nieces or nephews. We're unsure. But what I'm sure of is this. That as long as that thing was tied in that window, she, you know, she lived up on top of the wall. Jericho was a massive city. They tell us that chariots could drive side by side around the walls, right on top of the place. It was huge. Her house was up there. 
I mean, they had a street on top of the wall. Her house opened onto that street. That was her front door up there on that. She had a window on that side of her house, and that's, that's what she let them down at. Now, I, I don't understand how this works exactly. You know, all I know is this. As long as that scarlet thread was hanging there, kids weren't allowed to crawl in and out of that window. I mean, I promise you, I promise you, even if in the past she had chucked stuff out that window over the city walls, she didn't do it anymore. Even if that was where they handed groceries in out of her chariot, she didn't do it anymore. It might have been inconvenient. Other people might have still done that, but not her house. And if you'd have asked her, why is it you live different than all the people up and down your street? She just said, because I'm trying to save my family. Now hear me. Hold it, hold it. We'll get there. Now there's certainly nothing inherently evil about a child crawling in and out of a window. Everybody got their brain still with them? Well, prove to me, preacher, that if a kid crawled through that window, it might have it destroyed her family. I don't have to prove that to you. She don't have to prove that to you. All she has to decide is this ain't worth the risk of what it might cost us. Because what if that kid goes through that window and tears that thing down and that's the moment they come? Prove to me, preacher, that if I do thus or so, it'll send me to hell. Wrong question. Does it put my family at risk? Right question. Because all I'm saying is I'm willing to have some disciplines in my family to keep my kids safe. Because what if we cross a line just as he comes? All right, I'm going to try to make this make sense. The value of what was being decided in that window dictated the behavior. It placed them under restrictions that their neighbors did not observe. It demanded certain adjustments to their lifestyle and others did not understand and they may have even mocked them. Oh, why do you have to be so judgmental? We have liberty. We can load the groceries through the window if we want to. We can crawl through there if we desire. Who are you to tell me how to live? What's the big deal? The big deal is I'm trying to save my family. And because of that commitment, there will be certain disciplines in my life that are not sacrifices for me. They are privileges. Now I've preached this to kids. I might as well preach it to their parents. Stop feeling sorry for us. UPC doesn't stand for underprivileged children. We're not... I am so sick of that lie. Well, you know, we're cheating our kids. They get so much stuff they can't do. And I don't want to be mean to my kids. I want to be their buddies. God didn't call you to be their buddies. God called you to be their daddies. I don't care if you're their friend. Take them to heaven. And there comes a point that you've got to say, we're going to draw some lines and we're not cheating our kids out of nothing. Well, there's so much stuff they can't do. You're right. They can't have a teenage pregnancy. They can't have a sexually transmitted disease. They can't have an abortion. They can't have a drug addiction. 
We do horrible things to them like send them to youth camp and take them to church and teach them how to praise God. Isn't that horrible? No. That's the most blessed life you'll ever give your kids. Save your family. Save your family. Save your family. Now I'm going to... I hope you can handle this. But parents, men, ladies, guard your homes. Not just everything ought to come in your windows. If you've never stopped something at your window and said, that's not coming in our home, then you're probably failing at your assignment. Dad, you've got to stand at those portals in your house and say no to some things. Parents, you've got to say no to some patterns of dress. I have a beautiful 16-year-old daughter. She's, she's, she's gorgeous even if she's mine. Credit for that belongs to her mother. She's gorgeous in spite of being mine. She's modest. She's godly. And she really doesn't have a spirit to try to push those boundaries. And I've still had to look at her and say, that one's going back. Not wearing that. Why? Because she's a devil? Nope. Because I'm trying to save my family. Can I just, can I just, here we go, man. Anybody here a pilot for Southwest Airlines? Good, then I ain't scared any of you. I am tired of Hollywood defining for our girls what's beautiful. I'm tired of magazine racks at Walgreens trying to tell our girls what's beautiful. We need some dads to walk up to your daughter when she's godly and modest and say, sweetheart, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. You need to tell her, honey, that long hair is gorgeous on you, baby. You're the most beautiful thing. Because if you're not telling her that, she'll find somebody to tell her what's beautiful. Dad, you got to stop some things. I've wanted to, on occasion, have some girl in our church come in, and I'm looking at her, and I'm going, I mean, I, I'm a little upset at her, but I'm, I'm ticked at her dad. I want to I say, sir, please come up. We need to pray for your eyes. You have obviously been smitten blind. Because there's absolutely no way you bought those clothes for her and then brought her to church wearing that. I am convinced you don't want her to look like a harlot. So you must be blind. Let us pray for your healing. And when God opens your eyes and you look at her, surely you're going to turn around and say, Pastor, I'm sorry I brought her looking like that. You know what we need? We need some moms and dads backing up the pulpit. We need some moms and dads that don't go home and criticize what pastor preached, but go home and say, this is how we're going to live. This is a righteous home. You're a temple of the Holy Ghost, and we're going to cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You do your young children no favor by allowing them to live in ways contrary to the standards of righteousness that our church observes. Under the explanation that, well, we'll teach them when they get older differently. 
That's madness. They learn 90% of everything they'll ever know by the time they're seven. You're establishing patterns in them now that will be the framework for years to come. I don't mean to be ugly, but I'm just going to say it. In matters of hair, in matters of makeup and jewelry and dress, we don't follow those things to earn salvation, but we are guarding our family from wrong influences. We're guarding our children from spirits of hell. We are protecting an apostolic identity. You've got to stand at the portals of your home, Dad, Mom. And say some entertainment is not welcome here. If you've never turned away a DVD, then the odds are very great that your senses have become deadened by the corruption of this world. If you've never steered your children away from some music, you're either not standing guard at the window, or you've fallen prey to that lie out of hell that our children have to make their own choices. Hogwash. Train up a child in the way he should go. If you've never insisted that certain entertainment be turned off, then you've allowed the onslaught of wickedness out of Hollywood to wear you down until what shocked you yesterday is now welcomed through the window today. But I'm sounding an alarm in the holy mountain tonight. Some things can't come through our windows. This online world has become an abomination. MySpace and Facebook, Brother Dugas always gets them mixed up and calls them my face. We have apostolic kids posting pictures of themselves half-dressed, making comments that are unclean that they would never say in front of you because they know you're not standing at the window. I've got a friend, pastor in Texas, he's up preaching one night and said, Preach, he just preaching the paint off the walls. He said, how many of you kids, you do anything to live for God? You do anything to go to heaven. They all, Rah! He said, good, bring your cell phones up here and lay them on the altar. Well, what are they going to do then? They just said they would. They all brought their cell phones up here and laid them down. He said, how many of you parents, you do anything to live for God? How many of you parents, do anything to go to heaven? All the kids thought he was going to make the parents bring their cell phones up here and put them on the altar. They said, yeah. Tell me you parents do anything so your kids go to heaven. He said, good, come up and get their cell phone. Read the last text messages they were sending. He did it. He said, parents and kids raced each other to try to get to that altar to get that cell phone back. Now, you can like me or not. I don't care. I walked by. My son is 20 years old, still living in my house. I walk by him every now and then and say, Bo, give me a phone. And I flip it open. I read the text message he's got. I read the ones he sent. You say, what about his privacy? What about his soul? <laughs> privacy comes when he pays his own rent. Say, are you one of those guys that says, as long as you're under my roof? Yep. That's me. Good to meet you. As long as you're inside my scarlet thread, honey, I've got the right to examine what's coming in the window. (laughs) 
Your kids ought not have one Facebook account or MySpace account that you don't have the password to. They shouldn't have one email address that you don't have the password to. Technology, for all its advances, has become a window through which the enemy tries to get into our houses. Online pornography revenue has topped the $100 billion mark annually. Every second, $3,075 is spent on pornography. Every second, 28,258 people are viewing pornography in the United States of America. Every 39 minutes, a new pornographic video is filmed and posted in the United States of America alone. Well, I don't want to intrude on their privacy. That ain't going to make do much good when they're burned in hell, is it? Now, I'm not trying to make us out to be a bunch of fear mongers, and I'm not trying for us to live in eternal insecurity, but I am talking about us living in eternal village, vigilance. And so, and so, and so. My son has on his laptop a piece of software that emails me every week, every website he's visited. You know why? Because I'm standing at the window. You say, what about you? Mine is emailed to somebody too. And I know, man, I got way out there now, and it was doing good a while ago, and now it's real snug. And some of you right now are saying that's going overboard. Really? Please tell me how much care is too much care to save my family. Tell me how much caution is too much caution to save my marriage. Tell me how much vigilance is too much vigilance to save my children. Tell me how much watchfulness is too much watchfulness when eternity hangs in the balance. Stand with me. We are living in an evil day. And that is a more significant statement than it might first appear. There are two verses in Scripture that are very significant in Ephesians chapter 6 that describe the battle we're in. Look with me, if you would, please, at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Now watch this carefully. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Get ready. He said, when the devil attacks, you got to be able to stand against him. Now, now see, we're, we're told that we're under attack. And the efforts of deception by the evil one and the armor of God allows us to stand against that attack. It presents us the picture of armed conflict, of sudden and furious attack with a clashing of swords that must be met blow for blow. And when the evil one comes against us, we are to stand against him. And when he presses, we press back. When he fights, we fight back. And when he swings, we swing back. That's the the picture there. But verse 13 depicts something entirely equally important but entirely different. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. When the evil one comes, you stand against him. But in an evil day, you just have to stand. The evil one attacks us in moments. But the evil day assaults us unceasingly. 
We stand against the devil. We withstand the evil day. Withstand speaks to me of consistency. It speaks to me of keeping that scarlet cord in place every day. Oh, when the enemy comes, I'll rise up and fuss and fight with him. But just living in an evil world, I will withstand with a scarlet cord in my family. I'm calling on every individual in this great place tonight to join me when necessary in standing against the evil one. But in an even greater fashion, I'm calling on every individual in this place to withstand in the evil day. Close your eyes with me right now. The basic unit of the church is under attack. We cannot put our head in the sand and pretend it is not there. We cannot pretend that we do not have marriages in the church unraveling. We cannot pretend that even homes of pastors and wives are immune from marital disharmony. Cannot bury our head in the sand and say, well, I've got an image to maintain. I've got, a, I've got a reputation to guard. No, I've got a family to guard. And we better understand the value of an apostolic identity and belief and lifestyle. And we better bind that scarlet cord in place. And we better say, I'm trying to raise a godly family in an ungodly day. I'm going to have to withstand. And so my altar call tonight is really very simple. I realize I'm preaching to a very diverse group. There are singles, there are youth, there are young couples raising small kids. There's couples my generation of life that have teenagers and post-teens. And there's couples in the empty nest syndrome that are now enjoying the wonders of grandchildren. And there's some of you here that your grandkids are having kids. And I understand all those dynamics. But I will tell you right now in the fear of God, there needs to be an altar response in this place right now. There ought to be moms and dads already getting your kids and saying, come on kids, we're going down to the altar because we're going to be an apostolic family. We're going to guard this thing with every... There need to be some moms and dads that have... Telling you where I am in the Holy Ghost right now. There's some couples that have been playing footloose and free with your marriage, and you've been dabbling around a little flirtation on the job, and you think you're going to get away with it. I'm telling you, better put that scarlet cord of commitment back in the window of your marriage and say, We are in this thing for the long haul, baby. I'm never leaving. We're not breaking this up. We're going to defy the statistics of this world. I'm looking for some moms and dads to come up here hand in hand and say, We're going to be apostolic till the day we die. I'm looking for grand. Grandmas and grandpas that want to invest in the third generation from them that will come up here and say, I make a renewed commitment to pray for my grandkids every day. There's an evil day and we've got to withstand it. All right, I'm done preaching, but it's way too quiet. I would to God that you'd lift your voice now. Lift your voice now. Lift your voice now. Lay your hands on your kids if they're here with you talking tongues. Lay your hands on them and pray in the Holy Ghost. Plead the blood of Christ over their marriages in the future. Plead the blood of Christ over their spouse that's still out there somewhere. Plead the blood of Christ over your own marriage and say, God, protect us. I'm not infallible. I'm not any greater than others who have stumbled. God, keep me shelter me protect me I give myself to you
Come on, lift your voice. We're going to clean some things out of our DVD case. We're going to clean some things out of our computers. We're going to clean some things out of our lifestyle patterns and habits. There's going to be some things we clean out because we're trying to save our family. I don't know if it's sin or not, but it's not worth my kids' chances. The stakes are too high. We're going to back up our pastor. Kids, I want you to know we're going to be a family that backs up our preacher. What he asks of us, we're going to do. What he preaches to us, we're going to live. Kids, I just want you to know our man of God's the greatest man of God in all the world. We're going to live what he preaches. We're going to go to heaven together. Death couldn't hold you.